Welcome to the 354th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk about technologies of COVID surveillance and control in South Korea and China with Youngrim Kim and Yuchin Chen. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. Just a brief program note here. I want to acknowledge my guest host yesterday, Esther Chernak from Drexel University with guests Tom Hipper and Vincent Cavello. It was a great discussion, episode number 353. Please go back and check that. And it was really a joy to see my colleague and friend, Esther Chernak, behind the microphone with COVID calls. She did a great job, and I hope we'll get her back for future calls. Please do check that one out. As of today, October 7th, 2021, there are 4,831,361 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. China reports 4,849 deaths from COVID-19. The nation of South Korea reports 2,544 total deaths from COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Richardson Berkner High School student, age 16, and a Richardson Independent School District teacher die from COVID-19 complications. This was written by Corbett Smith and Emily Donaldson and appeared October the 4th, 2021 in the Dallas Morning News. A Richardson ISD student and a staff member died from complications of COVID-19, officials announced Monday. Shania Nini McGee, a junior at Berkner High School, and Eroleta Piacek, a teacher at Krista McAuliffe Learning Center, the district's disciplinary alternative school, both died last week, said Superintendent Jeannie Stone in a message to families in the district. All of us at the Richardson Independent School District are deeply saddened by this loss and want you to know that we are here to help you in any way we can. Stone's message read. Counselors have shared this news with campus staff and students and will remain available for anyone who would like some help processing the news, she said. Neither the Texas Education Agency nor the Department of State Health Services tracks how many educators and students in Texas have died from the coronavirus. Education Week has documented through reader submissions and its own reporting at least 1,161 educator deaths nationwide, including 387 active teachers as of October 1st. More than one-tenth of that total comes from Texas. 
Student deaths are also not tracked directly by the TEA on the state health services website. As of September 26th, the state's cumulative COVID-19 case total for students in the current school year was 172,275 cases. Last summer, Jamila Dirian Imoni Barber, a senior to be at Lancaster High School, died of complications from COVID-19, making her the youngest person in Dallas County to have died from the coronavirus at that time. Barber had no known underlying health conditions, a city spokesperson said. The Stone called McGee kind, respectful, and a valued member of the Berkner High School family. Ms. McGee, 16, was a peer mediator at the campus. Prior to the current school year, she had attended Richardson Pierce as a freshman and middle school at Park Hill Junior High. Ms. Piacic, 71, was compassionate, gracious, and a talented educator, Stone wrote. Piacic had worked in Richardson for 20 years, 19 of them at the Krista McAuliffe Learning Center. We are in contact with both Nini's and Erleta's families, and we will support them in any way possible, Stone said. Richardson trustees observed a moment of silence in honor of McGee and Piacic at a board meeting Monday evening. We were saddened with two tragic losses this past week due to COVID-19 complications, Superintendent Stone said. Stone told the crowd assembled that teachers described McGee as sweet and kind and a delight to know and have in class. Piacic was a longtime teacher at the Krista McAuliffe Learning Center who was a dedicated and loving teacher, Stone said. Richardson reported 113 active COVID-19 cases among students and 16 among employees as of October 1st. Berkner School had 10 active cases of coronavirus and McAuliffe Learning Center had none, according to the most updated report. One of the district's secondary students is currently in an intensive care unit, said Ashley Jones, the district's director of health services at Monday night's school board meeting. We have not seen this affect our students or staff to date like we have this week, said Jones, who later teared up during a discussion about health protocols and how kids have been impacted by COVID-19. Since August, when the school year started in Texas, the Richardson Independent School District has reported more than 1,100 COVID cases among students and more than 200 among employees, representing roughly 3% of the district's total enrollment and staff. Over that time, the district has mandated mask usage on campuses from students, staff, and visitors, despite an executive order by Texas Governor Greg Abbott prohibiting such policies. In late August of this year, the district's Board of Trustees voted 5-2 to two to join an existing lawsuit against the governor, arguing that he had exceeded his authority under the Disaster Act and that Executive Order GA-38 unlawfully limits the rights of the school district as an employer and educational institution to establish necessary safety measures. On September 3rd, the district's Board of Trustees reaffirmed the mask requirement not long after the district was forced to temporarily shutter Brentfield Elementary in order to stop a COVID-19 outbreak on that campus. One week later, Richardson and its trustees were among a handful of districts sued by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton for violating the governor's executive order. Not only are superintendents across Texas, Paxton argued, openly violating state law, but they're using district resources that ought to be used for teacher merit raises or other educational benefits to defend their unlawful political maneuvering. 
Paxton said in a statement. The headline was Richardson Berkner High School student age 16 and a Richardson Independent School District teacher die from COVID-19 complications. This appeared in the Dallas Morning News this week. Okay, I'm delighted to turn to the conversation today and let me please introduce my guests. Youngrim Kim is a PhD candidate in the Department of Communication and Media at the University of Michigan and a Rackham pre-doctoral fellow. She's interested in the social, cultural, and political implications of disaster information technologies in East Asia. She's currently writing a dissertation that examines South Korea's technologically driven infectious disease governance throughout the 2015 MERS epidemic to the current COVID-19 pandemic and how it relates to the issues of national identity, marginalization, and civic participation in crisis situations. My second guest is Yushin Chen. Yushin is a third year PhD student at Communication and Media at the University of Michigan. Her research looks at the transnational flow of technology, knowledge, labor, and capital, and how it relates to social experiments in China. Yushin Chen and Young Rim Kim, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I'd like to start the way I generally do, find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there. Yushin, can I start with you, please? Sure. Uh, I'm calling from New Jersey, uh, specifically Jersey City. And I stopped like checking the statistics since a long time ago, so I cannot really say <laughs> how the pandemic situation is like here. But um, I'm just, it's its a beautiful day today, and I just always feel confused by, it's one of those days where you feel confused by this seemingly normalcy. But then I'm also participating in a conference right now, which is happening online. So through those moments, you really, like those moments really remind you that you're still in a pandemic. Otherwise, Sometimes there's this <laughs> just seemingly normalcy out there. That's pretty That's, much me. And what about wearing masks and on the streets of Jersey City now? Are people doing that? Yes. I think mostly people are still doing that. And usually during trans commuting to New York, Manhattan, um, people are still pretty strictly following the rules. But of course, like in the outdoor settings, it might be more loose. It's... So interesting to me, you describe, you know, things beautiful outside seem to be getting back to normal and yet we're conducting this via uh, distance technology. You're engaged in one of the largest, I'm assuming it's the 4S meeting, maybe it's a different meeting. You're engaged in one of the largest um, meetings in our shared profession digitally coming from Toronto. Still uncanny times in terms of what we consider normal and abnormal, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Let me bring you in. Same question. Yeah, um, great to be here. Um, I'm calling in from Ithaca, New York. Um, I'm staying in Ithaca this academic year because I'm currently on a fellowship. Um, there was a rise of cases in last August um, to early September when the semester just started. Um, and Cornell is currently doing in-person classes, so there were a lot of students in campus, definitely. Um, but I think around 96% of on-campus population is vaccinated and the university is doing pretty rigorous um, weekly testing and mask mandates. Um, so the weekly cases are down to less than 10 per day these days. So I think we're okay. Yeah, really good. 96%. Mm -hmm. Is that what you said? Yeah. 
Cornell is a massive campus and a large student population. So that's really quite an achievement, I would say. Mm -hmm, definitely. Young Rim, let me stay with you and, and ask if you wouldn't mind sharing a memory of this pandemic period, something that has really stuck in your memory. Okay, so um, the strongest memory of the pandemic to me to me um, will be when one of my family members was actually tested COVID positive for COVID um, during last March 2020. Um, I was in South Korea back back then to do my field work, um, and this is this was a period when COVID started to get very serious. Um, it was also the time when there was a huge number of cases happening in New York City. Um, so one of my family members, she was she was living in New York City and trying to fly back to Korea because the situation in New York was getting worrisome. Um, she was tested positive at the Incheon airport as she as soon as she arrived. Um, interesting thing is that she was asymptomatic at that time, but um, so that so she could bypass the COVID testing. But she was experiencing the loss of smell and taste, um, which, by the way, was not one of the known one of the known symptoms, one of the known COVID symptoms at that time. So I remember being on phone with her constantly um, when she was at the airport, um, and I was like telling her to report this symptom to the quarantine officials anyway. Um, we were both unsure what to do, um, and that's how she was tested positive. And she was sent directly to the government facility where they were isolating a lot of asymptomatic patients. Um, and she was locked there for nearly five weeks until she was tested negative for um, three consecutive times. So it was definitely a hard time for my family, for her, definitely, and for myself. Um, I remember like driving a couple of hours every week um, to deliver care packages to her. Um, the facility was strictly um, guarded by Korean military office soldiers, so I could only hand over the care packages to them. But we did that anyway to make sure to let her know that we are here for her and that she's not alone. Um, and we are very fortunate. We are feeling fortunate to have her fully recovered now. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm glad she's okay. What a harrowing experience. And yeah, to... Um, have her volunteer that information? I mean, had she not, do you think that it, based on how things were set up at that time, could she have walked out of the airport and gone home? She, yeah. So, so the, the testing checklist, um, there was a checklist for symptoms and the symptoms that she had was what not in those checklists. So mm. if she just turned in that checklist, then she would be um, labeled as, 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 not having symptoms for COVID and not, and therefore not be not under um, uh, under sub not subjected to the testing. So if 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 she hasn't voluntarily told that she is experiencing this symptom, then I I guess that she wouldn't be she wouldn't have been tested positive in the airport. Uh, that's really interesting. I mean, that's I guess when the when the health social contract works, I guess to a certain mm -hmm. degree. Think about it that way. But I'm sorry she had to go through all of that. Uh, let Yushin, let me come to you. Same same question, maybe if you wouldn't mind sharing a memory that defines this time for you. Yes, definitely. Um, I think one of the strongest memories of the pandemic is definitely the day when Michigan issued the lockdown last March. It's literally right after um, our school spring break. I remember it vividly, it was a Tuesday. And then on that day, I had my last in-person class ever in grad school, probably also in my life uh, as a student. So it was um, 
And funny thing is that it was a science and technology core theory class. Therefore, when we were doing the class, basically we weren't doing any class readings at that time, but we were just trying to make sense and talk about the pandemic. Well, back then it was still COVID-19, not really a declared pandemic. We're still trying to make sense of the COVID-19 with a lot of <laughs> theory-dense discussions and trying to um, make sense of the time. I remember there was a, a sense of optimism in the air, which is like, okay, we're just going to do this for an, a month or something. And then we never knew then how, when it will end or what kind of impact it will bring to us individually. So when, whenever I go back to that moment, I just feel like very sentimental and just like, unpredictable about the future and anything yeah that's it thank you and and i've talked i've asked many guests this question and and a few people have responded in a similar way how long did you think you would be in that situation at that time if you can remember back that far how long did you think you'd be out of out of out of class i i i i thought it would just be a semester thing and then actually Michigan did bring back bring back shortly in person school in fall of 2020 and then um with the COVID situation involved it got stopped. Um but at that time I remember that night specifically my family members were checking flights back to China and it surged mm. up to three thousand to seven thousand dollars per flight. And then I was they literally was asking if I want to go back. I was like no why, why, why would I go back? What if my school resumed in one month and then I never actually be, was able to go back since then. So that was ironic. months later. Yeah, it really is. really is. Well, thank you also for, for that time capsule of your, of your memory. Folks, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with Yushin Chen and Youngrim Kim. We're going to turn to our conversation now about health surveillance technology. And um, my two guests have co-authored uh, with a third author, Fan Lang, uh, a quite remarkable article that I hope everybody will check out, uh, Engineering Care in Pandemic Techno-Governance, the Politics of Care in China and South Korea's COVID-19 Tracking Apps. And these um, health tracking apps Got a lot of news coverage early on in the pandemic, disappeared um, this year in the journal New Media and Society. So please do check that out. And I want to actually just start with a general question. Youngrim, I'm going to throw the first question to you, which is trying to understand a little bit of the prehistory here before COVID. So what was the use of health surveillance like in Korea? I mean, I guess if you think about health surveillance from a public health sense, it could go very far back, but, but particularly sort of technologically driven health surveillance. How, where does that story start in South Korea? Yeah, so one thing we really try to stress throughout the paper is that it's important to situate these COVID-19 surveillance technologies within the sociocultural context of where they emerge from. 
um, because these technologies are not being created out of the blue. So South Korea received a lot of attention during COVID-19 because of its proactive use of digital technologies and COVID response. Um, this includes digital contact tracing and quarantine enforcing mobile apps, uh, among various other um, technologies. But this um, disease surveillance technologies have been actively being invested and built um, since 2015, when this was the period when South Korea experienced the second largest outbreak of MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, um, in the world. So the use of mobile phone location tracking for public health purposes, um, this was an already established practice um, in 2015. And based on this legal parameter, um, the South Korean government and mobile network companies, including KT, um, have built what's called the smart quarantine system. So this is a system that integrates um, international travel records, your mobile location data, your current card transaction data into the state's public health infrastructure. So for instance, let's say if you've a flu from one of the risk countries as listed by the Korea's, um, Korean Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, let's say, for example, Saudi Arabia, which was marked as the epicenter of MERS coronavirus um, um, at that time and until today. So such travel record is noted in the Korea's prescription drug monitoring system, which is also called DUR in Korea. Um, so that your travel record can be immediately accessed by any doctor that treats you for whatever reason. So they would immediately know that, oh, you came from Saudi Arabia. You, If you are showing symptoms of MERS, um, tell me, let me know so that I could check that. Um, so this COVID surveillance technologies that we are seeing right now is built upon and dependent upon these already um, institutionalized measures. So, and we're stressing that these um, already established technologies and measures um, they are not just doing the technical work, but also the perceptual groundwork um, that's, that are necessary when deploying um, the COVID-19 tracking apps in Korea. And just to ask you a little bit of a follow-up there about the apps. So are they any more complicated than a regular app? Is there a step in there in which a person has to uh, agree to divulge um, personal information? Or do you download it like you would download any other app on your phone? You download it like any other app on your phone, but like any other uh, other phones, you have there is like a first page of consent form that you're providing this information, private information, to um to the back to 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 the state officials. And if you agree, um, if you you need you need you you have no choice, you have to press agree. And then all these um all the location tracking and the health symptoms that you're reporting to this app are immediate is immediately accessible to your designated state official who who is designated to you to monitor you for the two week quarantine period, which I can elaborate later. Okay, so we'll talk about that. So that's already established in twenty fifteen with MERS and um was there any pushback, dissent, concern among civil liberties groups in South Korea or anywhere else in the world at that time that this was overreach? Or, or I guess the other side of that, what was the public health response to I mean, how do people receive it? I mean, just to be clear, this app is something new that has been built in, in, in the in like last March um, okay. um, during the initial phase of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, the, specifically, this app was built for a COVID-19 response, but the legal parameters, the technical parameters that are needed to that that are needed to like legitimize this app 
has been has it has a precedent. It, it has been continued okay. since the 2015 virus epidemic. All right. Thanks for yeah. that clarification. I mean, was there an attempt to build an app in 2015, or a discussion to actually go that far, or they didn't need to do it? No. Largely, they didn't need to do it because the the outbreak only lasts for three, four months. So it was it, it was not as long as as the COVID nineteen, and also a lot of um, clusters of infection happened within the hospitals, not not in 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 local and less in local um, local communities. So and so there wasn't that momentum to build an app for for general users at, at in two thousand fifteen. I see, but the legal framework is is there. Yuchen, let me come to you. Same question, but from the Chinese perspective, um, the background before we get to COVID nineteen for this kind of health surveillance tracking. Yeah, so I think for the China side of the story, it's similarly about building on previous data, digital or institutional infrastructures. Where I would like to emphasize that public-private partnerships of developing such platforms and data sharing practices have been happening. Um, for example, um, as we mentioned in the paper, the social credit system has actually been brought up quite a few times as an example of how China has been using such kind of surveillance measures to uh, regulate society or maintain certain kind of social order. Um, but then I will refrain from saying it's simply a technical system for surveillance purposes, but it definitely shows one of the processes of like Chinese government's efforts in digitization and platformization of um, e-governance or any social management related works. Um, I also want to emphasize that even in pre-digital era in China, there have been various kinds of such analog infrastructure existing, mm -hmm. such as the Hukou system and system, which is a personal dossier system recording personal information and histories. So those things, those analog systems also performed a re regulation role. But for public health specifically, there was a, after SARS in 20, early 2000s, there have been, the central government had been developing a system of direct reporting system that allows local CDCs and local hospitals even to report to the central government specifically if anything happens. While some argue that this system has failed miserably in the COVID-19 case, but I did not go too deep into researching this system particularly. So I would just use it, say as an example that it did, mm. it did like echoing Yarwing, which is they should be considered as a continuum of both countries' efforts and bringing things together with digital technologies or with technologies at large. Right, so this is why you always need to have historians of technology in the room because we're here to tell you about the continuities. Uh, and and I, I think this is what you both pointed to, of course, an area that I hope you're researching and others are researching to, to try to put these, these health surveillance apps in a much longer um, sort of continuum but there are differences, and I think we should talk about that. So maybe just, um, Yuchin, let me stay with you on this. Um, talk a little bit about the moment that the COVID-19 health tracking app, um, if there's one, maybe there's multiple of them, I don't know, in China. Tell us about that early um, phase, the development and the deployment of it. And I would just add, I remember exactly where I was when I saw first sort of news coverage of that. 
And it was also in the context of the Wuhan lockdown. And um, I had a sort of two immediate reactions. One was um, really kind of startled by it. Um, and then when I saw that in the context of the lockdown, it, there was a sort of logic that clicked in. I thought, oh, this this is a comprehensive thing that was not dreamed up overnight. I, so I didn't think about it as clearly as you're describing it, but I already sensed there was a continuity in play. But I'd like you to say a little bit more about it, if you could. Definitely, definitely. I would I would probably say a little bit about what the what the system is, just to give a context of how yeah, the system please. works as in its mechanisms. So it's actually called the health QR code system. It's a it's basically function like a QR code that classifies people into color codes. There there are red codes, there are yellow codes, there are green codes, and those codes manifest whether people should be quarantined or not and how long they should be in quarantine. For example, like red code meaning, red code means you need to quarantine for 14 days while yellow code means for seven days and then green code means you're free to, you know, free to go anywhere. And they, the, the health QR code is basically built, firstly, it firstly appeared last February 9th in Shenzhen, Shenzhen, which is the headquarter of Tencent, which is the company who owns WeChat. And then shortly after it appears in Hangzhou, uh, a system developed uh, by Hangzhou's, gov Hangzhou's government and collaborated with Alibaba. So, it, so both codes were built on already existing infrastructure, but it's owned by private sectors, especially those tech giants in China. And then the code itself requires to collect data specifically four kinds of data from the users, at least in the initially phases to, for using those data to access and sign color codes. So they require personal information such as gender, name, ID numbers, and then they require users to upload and log in their daily health data such as symptoms or temperature and if you've been any like risky areas. Um, Beyond those things, they also will will verify in the back end about with with geolocation data to see if they really have been traveled to those areas and if their self report has been true. Right. Um, other things might be included in this this app, which is which might be like testing results if you went for a test, things like that. So it's pretty 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 comprehensive app, I would say, because it requires interactions between the app and users, but then you also will have a very systematic database behind for verification processes. So like I said, back to how it's developed and deployed in different countries. So initially it, it was um, a public private sector collaboration. So tech giants and municipal governments collaborating to have these kinds of apps available at that time. But then later on, it really got de deployed around the country very quick. And then the government rhetoric being like, this is, this manifests a kind of Chinese speed because it's over, only take, it only took seven days for Alibaba to put the codes around 100, over a hundred cities. And then it only took them for 40 days to have it nationwide. So it was praised as a kind of speed and speedy reaction to contain the COVID-19 in China. And then there was also, I vividly report, uh, recall reading this article uh, saying how Alibaba's programmers actually, so during the development phase, it was actually during Chinese Spring Festival, which mm. is deemed as one of the most important 
festivals and holidays in China for family reunions, right? But then I saw this report saying like how Alibaba's programmers actually sacrifice themselves and their private times with families to develop the code and make this happen so that, you know, like the whole nation can sort of mm -hmm. enjoy a more safe, um, a safer environment. And yeah, so I, I would just stop there. I, I'm glad you put that note there because we'll return to it. This sort of idea of national sacrifice involved with this broader project is an important one, as you point out in your in your article, Young Rim. Let me come to you. Maybe you can develop a similar kind of narrative as Yushin did, but for South Korea. Yeah. Um, so similarly, South Korean app, um, but the South Korean app ha is similar and also different from the the um, China's app that we were talking about in the paper. Um, the South Korean app that I'm specifically talking about today is the self quarantine safety protection app. It's called Tagagami Anjongbuhu app in in South Korea. It's a quarantine enforcing app, which means that. Um, it, it was developed to monitor people under home isolation and track their location um, to make sure that they're not leaving their home. Um, the discussion about this app was brought up starting from mid-February 2020, when there was a growing public concern over people in home isolation violating the quarantine rule and going outside. Um, and by the way, when I'm saying people in home isolation, this is not talking about people who are tested positive for COVID-19, they go straight to government facilities. I'm actually talking about people who are in close contacts with confirmed patients or, or also recent travelers from abroad who are considered as high risk group um, for contracting COVID-19 in South Korea. And these two groups were strictly subjected to mandatory 14 day home isolation. Uh, in last spring, um, in 2020, the media coverage heavily reported the um, reported self-isolation violators as huge threats to the local communities. And because of public concern grew about this issue, the Korean government developed these apps to track people's mobile phone location to make sure that these um, self-isolation people who should be self-isolated are indeed at home. So there. If you install the app, there is a designated civil servant that is matched with you, and that person will monitor your location and monitor your health symptoms during the two-week quarantine period. And if you violate this rule, you can be subjected to criminal charges, including fine and imprisonment. Um, yeah, so this app was released in early March 2020, and it's still being used by the state. So I just want to make sure that I'm not... Um that I'm keeping the two different apps and approaches slightly separate. So the one in South Korea, then, as you're describing it, Yongrim, is it's a quarantine app. Mm -hmm. So it's meant to come into play um, when someone, I suppose, has been exposed, um, they know they have been, or when they're traveling. But it's not something that all South Koreans who have mobile phones were required to carry. Is that correct? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Yuchin, um, in the China case, the app that you're talking about, or the the QR, um, was that required of, of everyone in China? This is a, a sort of compulsory thing for all citizens, or similarly, only people who had had some kind of exposure or in a dangerous zone? Yes, I think that's a great distinction to uh, distinct distinction to emphasize here, because in China, the app is mandatory to use. It's actually enforced 
to implement by grassroots government workers. So that's a very important distinction. And one more thing I would add, which is when I introduced the deployment development of the system, actually starts from cities. So initially, or at least in the first few months, when we conducted their research, there, I need to emphasize that there are different apps and different um, different apps and different interfaces for different regions and cities. Because of during that time, the risk level of different regions and provinces are so different. So there was a there was technical difficulty in actually develop a nationwide unified system. So that's also like important side note. So there's a moment in time there in which different regional governments are operating at different pace, Yuchen? So we can yeah. capture that. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and also um, initially when people need to travel, for example, from one province to the other, he or she need to download two apps for those two cities and logging their self, um, uh, logging their self health status every day in both apps. Otherwise, they cannot actually show the code and travel across regions. And Youngrim, what about the the South Korean app? This is developed. Tell us a little bit about more about um, who develops it, who has oversight of it, and how that worked. Yeah, so the South Korea the South, South Korean app is very centralized. It's developed by the Ministry of Interior Interior and Safety. Um, this is the ministry that's responsible for this app. Although the Ministry of Health and Welfare and Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency. Um, have also collaborated in building this app. So um, yeah, it's a it's more centralized than the than the Chinese one. So I, I have like kind of like a historian's question here for both of you, and it has to do with um, as you think about um, this kind of research, how much access did you have already, or how much do you think you will have in the future to the kinds of records of deliberation that went on behind the scenes. I mean, you're describing even young Remo, what you're describing in multiple government ministries here that have some sort of input in this. These are not small agencies, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of bureaucrats, a lot of scientists, a lot of communication, I'm sure. Um, I guess my, my first instinct would be to say um, some of that will be public and some of it will never see the light of day, but I don't actually know how those percentages break down. Do, do you have any sense of how much that you can get access to? You mean like to, to actually like inter speak with some of the um, state officials who were building these apps? Um, Absolutely. Right. So when we were when we were writing this research, we were doing discourse analysis. So we were mainly depend um, depending on like um, the first and primary materials that has been written about these apps. But after that, for my dissertation research, um, and, and and even before that, yeah, I did gain some access to to interview some public health experts and state officials who are involved um, in in building not only this app, but also other surveillance technologies that has been deployed in, in South Korea's COVID surveillance. Um, but it was, it was I, I must say, it was very difficult and they were very um, conscious about um, having um, what, what's gonna be out, uh, about, what's gonna be like out public about 
um, the government's work within it. And especially when I was asking about the MERS epidemic, it, it was more difficult to, to communicate that because MERS epidemic was a national crisis in South Korea. And, and there, there was, there were a lot of, um, government officials who were, who, who stepped down from their position because of their, uh, because of, of the, of the missteps in, in managing the MERS crisis. So, but, but for COVID, um, especially earlier last year when South Korea was trying to like heavily promote their COVID um, governance as a key quarantine and some and as a model for international um, uh, other countries to follow, that period it, it felt a little bit easy to 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 um, bring people to interview to bring people to talk with me. So yeah, I think it depends on like the what the public discourse around. Um, around state governance is at that moment. Yuchen, same question. I think, you know, everybody wants to know, how do you get access to these kinds of materials, if you can, that take us inside the sort of development of the app and the internal debates within the government as to how to roll it out? Yeah. Um, I would say when, I would just use our paper as an example to say my general reasoning. Uh, when we did the research, we really heavily relied on public discourses surrounding the apps themselves. Because during that time, firstly, it's a very new phenomenon. It's actually, we're trying to capture the historical moment where things got just emerged. So a lot of conversations, we really, we really just capture it on an everyday basis. And then uh, to try to get as much, but I would say we, we were trying to get as many perspectives as we can. In our, in our paper, because when we do this public discourse analysis and when we incorporate, for example, media discourses, and then we also would like to pay attention to, for example, how users think of it, and then how different actors kind of speak to the same thing, but then using different languages or um, speaking, see if they are speaking for or against each other. So that's an important way for us to piece out like how such things got constructed, but then not from a just single perspective. Other than that, speaking of um, access in general, I think it does get increasingly hard, especially when I'm physically not um, sure. in China. So that's been a constant challenge, especially after the pandemic. And yeah. Just uh, want to remind everybody, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Yushin Chen and Youngrim Kim today about technology of surveillance in South Korea and China, COVID-19. And I want to turn back to your article here. And I'm going to actually just, I just want to read, um, we're, going to, we're going to talk about how the public perceived these apps and how you know, the government and the public sort of develop a relationship, if you will, mediated through this technology. I'm just going to beautifully written. I just want to quote here. Um, in both China and South Korea, we discovered that materials from state and news media constantly defined and discriminated between ideal and deviant subjects of the apps. We argue that such defining work served as a vital mechanism 
have justified the needs of the apps by targeting deviant individuals as objects of blame. And you talk about that as sort of conceptual analysis there um, as establishing what you call structures of vilification. And you also give us some uh, anal analytical tools to think with from a, a politics of care discourse as well. So, um, you know, the, these apps and their rollout have to also be part of larger public health apparatus in South Korea and China, in which the state defines itself either as um, scientific leader. I don't think we have to choose among these, but some of the options, scientific leader, a punisher, a tracker, a mother, a friend. Um, and of course, people who study, you know, state use of technology are always interested in the ways that how a new technology, either for warfare or for health, gets characterized by the government agencies who have that responsibility. And I think this article makes an interesting contribution to that ongoing discussion. Young Rim, let me bring you in on this first to talk about the the ways that uptake worked, how citizens reacted to the app, how news media and um, how the state sort of packaged um, their discourse around it. Take us into that world, the, the vilification or the, the mothering of the app, if you will. Yeah, to, so to speak first about vilification, I do want to um, ha like speak a few notes about the politics of care, which is what our paper is heavily um, um, centering. So the politics of care is a concept widely discussed in feminist science and technology studies. Uh, which tries to understand techno-science as deeply biopolitical projects and central sites of ideological production. So the politics of care understands care as always embroiled in this messy, non-innocent politics. And there has been a stream of literature that tries to understand how care, um, how the concept of care is strategically deployed as a means of techno-scientific governance. So we try to bridge this perspective, um, this framework with surveillance to understand um, how care is manipulated in state projects by being framed um, both as an affordance and as a phenomenon of surveillance. And we try to grapple with this blurred boundary between um, care and control in surveillance activities. So um, now going into vilification, um, when we're um, we when we're looking at these discursive materials, user reviews um, that has been written about these apps. Um, we were trying to understand how they were constructing the cultural understanding um, of these apps. So uh, for the Korean app, so for the China Chinese app, we, we identified a lot of themes around repair um, written about the China's app, like repairing the, mist, the early missteps of, of, of China's information secrecy about coronavirus. Um, for the Korean materials, um, focus a lot about protecting and safeguarding the nation from both um, external and internal threats that can that can pose a, a, a pose threats to the communities. So in this case, the language and feelings of state care was mobilized by constructing this outright enemy, the image of an outright enemy. Um, be them foreigners who carry the virus to the Korean soil or people within the country who do not follow the prevention rules and behave wrongly. So I say in the article that the idea that this idea of state care that these apps try to claim um, that these apps claim to provide is built upon these structures of vilification that actively define and manage the, de the deviant and risky bodies as targets of surveillance. 
But also, I do want to mention here that the Korean app's role was not just to track the subject's location, but it was also um, in place to monitor the subject, the user's health, um, who are definitely in high risk of contracting COVID. So people under home isolation had um, an immediate point of contact. It's designated civil servant whom they can ask questions or ask assistance when they are feeling sick. So in the early phase of the pandemic, when there was a lot of uncertainty around the virus, having this immediate contact, immediate point of contact generally gave a lot of reassurance and relief. Um, um, that was definitely the dominant emotion that we identified in the user reviews. And it was interesting that the majority of user reviews during this period was, were expressing appreciation to um, their designated civil servant when like, they were describing their feelings um, about this experience. Um, but I, I, I assume we, I haven't followed along um, that deeply after, um, after we published this research, how that discourse is going on right now. But I assume that it, it would have changed radically as, as we know more about the, the virus itself and as people's like, um, fear toward the virus kind of becomes a little bit numb as, as the pandemic goes on. So, so that perception would have probably be, um, be changed by now. Uh, let me just personalize it for a second and ask about my own experience. And maybe you can translate it for me a little bit. Yuchin, I hope you'll tolerate this just for a second, because I arrived with my family here in South Korea in February of this year. And um, we had a two week mandatory quarantine. And of course, before you for people know, I mean, to come from the United States, where it was like show up at the airport, they're like, you know, how you feeling? Check a box. I mean, if, if that I mean, it was very lax. To arrive in South Korea and have multiple checkpoints that you have to move through before you go through secure customs, mm -hmm. and they and they take your phone and they install it for you, um, so that somebody like myself can't make a mistake, which I probably would. So, um, but our experience of it was the daily check-in, in which you had to take your temperature and and input that information. Um, but it was there was not what you're describing as sort of um, more personalized relationship or where it was made clear that a civil servant was actually sort of in a one-to-one -one relationship with you mediated through the technology maybe that had changed by that point but that wasn't emphasized to us and so i felt very kind of ambivalent about it on the one hand i felt uh, frankly uh, so much it was so different from the united states experience i felt some relief that somebody actually cared to know whether i was sick that day or not which Again, I th you can just use me as one more data point there. But also that discomfort in the entire time that, hey, if I walk out of here right now, uh, somebody's going to come find me. Mm -hmm. And I had to, and I'm constantly sort of juggling those two emotions. Of course, I had a lot of free time to juggle them because I was locked inside for two weeks. So I wonder, had it changed? Had the app's deployment and this sort of affective governance around it, had it changed by that point? Yeah, at first, one thing that I want to mention that was how this app was actually like rolled out and practiced in, in local districts, like very widely. So there was a local district that was like 24-7 looking at the app and seeing whether you are like accurately reporting health symptoms. That was, in my case, that was the that was the case because I also traveled, I also installed this app and had two-week mandatory um quarantine um this this April. So, so that, that was the case with me. So it, it, the, the experience varied widely, but also it, you're, tr it's right that early in the pandemic, like last year, they were heavily, heavily investing a lot of, um, 
um, civil servant efforts in in monitoring these apps more than more than this year, where like by now, like I don't know, like they they have I I don't know what's going on, but but they have different priorities within um, the local clinics. Mm-hmm. I know that they're they are also managing a lot of like contact tracing. Um, work so maybe and and when there is less case last year um it may be like number wise there were last less case last year than this year um so so may they may have more effort more more effort more i don't know capacity to to actually monitor the close contacts less than now uh, more than now mm-hmm. so that may be the reason what's going on um but the experience varied widely. That's what I can say. Okay. Yuchen, let me bring you in just to comment on anything we've been talking about here that you want to add about this sort of vilification idea or the politics of care. And, and thanks for putting up with my own personal story getting intervened in here. But I've got expert translators for this experience I've gone through, so I couldn't resist. Not at all. I think that experience itself really speaks to what we wanted to say, which is to understand why seemingly surveilling and like seemingly or like according to some western media discourses why seemingly like oppressive controlling system will be appreciated on the ground right so it's really through this experiences and efforts of care that you kind of justifies and slowly normalizes such systems and then i just cannot help but pointing to one thing you're mentioned which is about the labor the actual like materiality of such apps the invisible or sometimes visible human infrastructures that perform also like perform and enacting such care to the citizens that really functions alongside the technologies to make this structure of care more solid and then in china's case too we really don't have um the one-to-one kind of um, point person you can contact but um, throughout the research, I realized that the personnel, including volunteers, um, in Chinese we call we also call them like frontline workers or great workers. They really help um, managing and ma- really they really help manage and then sustain a kind of normalcy for everyday life for the citizens. For example, a lot of them, a lot of citizens when they were quarantining at home, it is through these frontline workers who constantly deliver food and medicine to them to help them sort of um, have a normal normal <laughs> everyday life um, sustainability. So I think that's uh, important to emphasize where human labor comes in and how the, pot, how the care itself is enacted through them as well. And they kind of embody a certain kind of relationship to the state. So just to go a little bit further with this and you Chen, let me throw this to you first. I mean, can we conclude then that in the China case that the health tracking technology, did it increase affection for the state? I mean, how would we, how do we measure, how do we come to know the success or failure of the government's efforts to, to divide people up, sort of good subjects and bad subjects based on how well they comply with the use of the technology? Did it work in that regard? And how do you measure it? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I also, I would say in terms of measuring it, I would, hmm, I think the wording of measure is an interesting one, uh, and then I would elaborate on it a little bit. In my case, right, I think the judgment of um, success or failure of such apps 
it's really depending on where's where do you ask the question who do you ask the question and then when do you ask the question because i would say initially when the app come out and compared to now where it is we should situate this in a larger geopolitical situation which in china's case constantly it's been compared to what's happening here in the united states specifically and then and then Chinese, during during my interviews with certain users in China, they constantly compare how there's um, how because of Chinese people have this collectivism and because uh, the government themselves can mobilize the, the people to cooperate so that COVID-19 got contained in China instead of something like America. So that, that thing is just constantly being, con that comparison just constantly being conjured in my interview and informal conversations, especially e even to my like family members that I found really interesting how the app itself and the success of it is through this constant positioning against the United States. And it has a really uh, temporal sense in it as well, because it, <laughs> it is like, it kind of proves itself along the time. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, that kind of is one very anecdotal or one specific example of how I would say how to measure this kind of success. But back to like me as a uh, researcher, I would say for qualitative analysis, we kind of try to see a pattern emerging out of these courses and then see how it, how it kind of speaks to a certain kind of ideology or common sense. And the more I go through the data, the more the more I see this, this uh, wording of care, serving, reassuring, hope coming up as a very positive energy in both state media and in people's everyday life talking about these kind of things. That in that way, I kind of come to, not conclusion, but come to my observation that that's how I measure how do apps work on people's affective relationship to the state? Yeah. That's a, uh, thank you for that. And young Rim, I want to ask you the same question. And, and I'm, I'm particularly impressed um, by this problem of calling anything a success or failure in COVID because COVID has changed what it is as a pandemic, even in Indian, so let's take the United States, at least been four different acts as far as I'm concerned. Maybe we're entering a fifth one of what it means. And then, of course, the minute you start looking in different parts of the country, um, success or failure will mean very different things. So I think Eugen's caution there is very well taken. Having said that, I'd still like to hear from you um, about this question of maybe can you generalize a bit about how people reacted to this invitation from the state to receive care and also this challenge from the state, you must receive care. <laughs> Yeah, um, my my response will be very similar with Utens, but first of all, it is like at least during the initial phase of the pandemic, like last spring, um, which is the period that we researched for public discourse. Um, it's true that the state's media and user reviews all spoke about like national pride was a very big feeling that were that were crossing all that that came out across all these materials and 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 in that sense maybe the 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 gov the states and um the experts did a good job in like conjuring this feeling of national pride um that korea is doing well korea is especially doing well compared to other um western countries especially compared to the u.s and um and it's because of and that 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 
national pride over how much Korea is a technologically advanced country, what definitely came across all of these materials. And if we say that that's how like affection was built, maybe yes. But as, as Yuchen said, it depends on when we are asking this and who we are asking this, especially in terms of success. Um, success is a really interesting term to me as well, because I, I had a chance to interview a lot of activist groups and engage with activist groups um, who were who were fighting for human rights um, during the, um, in in response to Korea's COVID nineteen surveillance, and they their their definition of success was very different. So. So yes, Korea may have lower numbers of, of, of positive cases. Um, Korea is doing relatively well in controlling the local transmission, but, but at whose expense? At whose rights are being violated? Um, whose, um, whose marginalized conditions are not being cared for in order to, to, to um, prevent the numbers from going up for the general mass? Um, so that question was always being brought up, and and I general I I wholeheartedly believe that people who are marginalized and people who are not in the condition to 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 um, to keep appropriate social distancing, who can work from home, um, who can um, who can do two two weeks of self quarantine without getting getting any wage, like. And and I don't think Korea did a good job in taking care of those people um, who are who are vulnerable, who are disproportionately vulnerable to to a public health risk like this. And if you're measuring success by that, then I would say um, there's a lot for Korea to do. There's a lot that we we still need to do. Just to draw you out a little bit more on that, I mean, uh, from what I know of the cases in South Korea, particularly early on, there were a large number of them in um, congregate care facilities and facilities with people who had um, disabilities, you know, people who were forced to live together in high density. Um, and then also there's the issue of the digital divide, which we haven't talked about yet. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that for those, I mean, it, by doing this as an app, the state itself has already kind of pre-decided who's in, who's in the care group and then who will receive some other kind of care if we can, if we can get to it, but they're not going to marshal the strongest tools to that. I, I guess what you're describing very much falls into that. I just want to give you another chance to say a little bit more about your observations in that regard. And then I, I guess to follow up, does that become a basis of activism or is this just a moment that is too fleeting, too wrapped up in the sort of broader discourses around COVID to build on? Because I think it's an important observation, but I wonder what you can do with it from an activist perspective. Um, so yes, there were a series of events, uh, very uh, discriminatory actions that have been um, being done, especially on, on LGBTQ communities and migrant workers communities regarding COVID technology surveillance in South Korea. And, and activists and, and human rights activists have been, have been organized around those incidents to respond to these incidents and stop um, these discriminatory actions being um, executed. So I don't know. One example that I can give um, would be this March when there was there was a series of clusters happening in um, workplaces where the majority of employees were migrant workers from South and Southeast Asia. So many local governments made this administrative order that mandated this testing um, to all foreign workers. 
Um, and if not, if they do not follow this testing, they would slap fines. And this order drew a lot of backlash as it was racist and xenophobic and also unscientific um, because the same order was not given to Korean nationals who are working in the same sites. So while some of the local governments withdrew, withdrew this order after this public backlash, many retained um, and it's still going on. And activists, um, these groups were, were coalescing these times to kind of um, respond and react to these discriminatory actions. And they were in a large of their efforts were, were, were telling the public, telling the government that just simply enforcing this discriminatory testing order um, is not enough when, when it, and it's not good when the local governments are not really paying attention to the poor workplace environments that these migrant workers are living in, um, which is impossible to maintain social distancing and not even providing like essential protective gear such as masks and sanitizers to foreign workers. Um, while, while, while Korean employees who are working in the same space are provided with these tools. So also, um, so also the testing order was not feasible to many of these workers because the majority of them live in the workers' dormitory and their boss would not let them go outside the local clinic, um, during the, during the weekdays and during work hours. So the workers could only get tested on Sunday, which makes the clinic very crowded and some could not get tested because there was a shortage. So this is one example of series of discrimination and violence that have been happening in Korea in the name of public health. Um, what I want to stress here is that COVID and the technologies that South Korea has built to control COVID very starkly has shown how the state and the Korean society perceive who belongs to this country and who are worth to protect. So the technologies like this app that we have been discussing so far, it may be useful to able-bodied middle-class user who holds the Korean citizenship and looks like one and, and tax savvy and all that. Um, but it is it, but it is exclusionary by design for marginalized users who don't have a safe space to be in, I don't know, two week home isolation who fear of getting laid off or being evicted from workers' dormitories if they don't um, show up for work, et cetera, et cetera. So the problem is when these technologies label those who violate the instruction as deviant subjects um, that pose a great threat to the community um, without considering these unequal um, socioeconomic conditions, then the vulnerable communities again become the easy targets of more oppressive surveillance. And I've, th this is a vicious cycle. Powerful observations there. Thank you for that. I um, I want to just circle back on, on one thing about the um, foreign perception of what was happening in China and South Korea. And Yuchin, let me get you to comment on this first. The um, Western media, Europe and the United States, of course, um, and we had a, a president of the United States who was actively using mostly China, what was happening in China as um, a foil for his own actions and characterizing the virus itself as an invader and invoking uh, a full 150 year history of anti-China uh, politics and racism in the United States. And he played every note um, perfectly, the racist that he is, of course, he was able to do that. Um, and so I guess I wanna ask you about like how you thought about that news coverage, cause I'm sure you were tracking it, but more specifically the ways that the apps um, were being handled by the Western media? Because I saw quite a wide variety of coverage. I mean, there was a sort of enthusiastic strain 
it's sort of like the Wired magazine kind of strain, like, wow, this is, and, and of course itself has its own kind of embedded essentialism. It's like, hey, here's East Asian tech again, doing something exciting and, and Asia becomes this one place. I mean, very confusing and, and kind of unfortunately predictable. And then the other side of it, it became a rallying cry for right-wing populist white nationalists who said, see what's happening over here in Asia and that will come to America too unless we, and of course they never really define what they want to do. So I don't mean to rant, but I, I was very exercised by that just from the American side. I'm surely curious how you perceive that news coverage and that spectrum of American or European response. Yeah, sure. I think I think this really like nicely plays out our conception of structural fluidification, but in a more like geopolitical context, especially like how the United States and Trump tries to do try, trying to shift tensions to China and kind of stigmatize China by doing the work of blaming. And then I really appreciate you mentioning the longer history of racism and racialization of China and Chinese bodies in the United States history because um, it has a I, I encountered this really amazing archive in the Museum of Chinese in America in the past week. And then, so they documented that in the 19th century, one of the central tenets of justifying the exclusion of Chinese in America was through the condemning their bread disease because of their diet of, claimed diet of like exotic animals and horrible living situations. Um, similarly, this was taken up in 2003 when SARS happens, and now again, like we see repeated in COVID-19 as well. So it really surges us to this material consequences of violence rooted in continuous racialization of an entire ethnicity, of equalizing them, like equating them to origins and carriers of disease, which is really dehumanizing and racialized. So that being said, it kind of now now tracing back to the technology part of the question intersects with the rhetoric of a fear of quote unquote the rising China and the rhetoric of a whole new tech war uh, or whole new tech cold war between the United States and China of seeing Chinese and Chinese technologies really as a threat with embedded surveilling potentials to United States. So that being said, a continuous racialization of Chinese, China and Chinese bodies intersecting with contemporary geopolitics of such a Cold War rhetoric. It kind of, I kind of see this phenomenon you mentioned embedded in those two things major, majorly going on in contemporary days. And then I personally would just take up, take it up as our paper kind of can act as a response to that by really ground in the on the ground lived experiences to argue against certain kind of dominant construction, especially by the United States of certain kind of Asian or Chinese technologies at large. Young Rim, just to give you an opportunity to how you thought Western media covered uh, what was happening in South Korea with, with these apps, what did you see? I mean, I largely echo what Yuchen just said, um, but I, I mean, it was largely essentialist and, and reductive and, and like trying to explain what's going on in China and South Korea with like, Asia's collectivist culture and, and their compliance with authority. But I think they, those were the major like um, narratives that has been um, circulating in the Western media. 
Um, but I think South Korea is in a weird middle place um, because, like, I, for, at least for my observation, I, I thought like some articles, as 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 you said, Professor Knowles, like some articles were like, "Oh, South Korea is doing great. We need to follow this. They're the model." Um, but at the, also at the same time, there were a lot of like mixed um, articles that was saying, "Oh, maybe they're." they're collecting too much information they're priving a lot of um they're they're intrusing uh intruding a lot of private information and maybe this is no 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 the, the western societies don't want to do this it's, it's so that was the mixed responses that i was also observing and i i felt both of them very reductive in a sense and and as you echoing you chen um, I wanted to see how how the how these apps were culturally being understood and their cultural meaning were being assigned to these apps throughout the period of pandemic um, in 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 the local grounds. So yeah, that's the area that we wanted to con contribute with with our paper. Okay, we're almost up on time. In fact, I've gone over time as I thought I might because I've been very greedy with my. Um colleagues' uh, ideas here today. It was great discussion. I just want to have uh, sort of one more question in young room. I'll ask you this first. It's, I'm sort of curious what happens next, and I'm not going to use the term post-pandemic because I'm not sure I believe in it. Um, but let's just say as we move into the next phase here, I was really interested in, in your description early on um, and looking closely at the data at the mixed feelings people in South Korea had about the use of the app. Um, and in some ways, I guess it also talking about continuity, it's to a certain extent, it's a referendum on how people feel about the National Health Service and their doctors more generally. I mean, it's hard to disentangle when people think about health. It's hard to disentangle. They don't say, well, I feel this way about this agency and I feel this way about this app. And it's it's a it's a bundle of emotions that are wrapped up there. So I guess I, my question to you is, can you... What are you looking for next? What are the kind of questions you'll be asking next about this relationship that's been forged through these apps? I mean, to me, one of the possibilities is that it actually increases people's demands for healthcare. Mm. And maybe I'm being naive here and I'm a newcomer to South Korea, but I could see it working that way that when you provide something that shows competency and people get used to it, they say, I'd like more of that competency, please. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I really appreciate this question about continuity and and how that's going to extend beyond um, COVID. And yeah, I'm one of the one of the things that I'm most concerned about is these technologies are already being normalized and very much routinized into the healthcare um, into the healthcare systems in Korea, and it's happening in a way that is not explicitly. Um, like so the patient when they go to the hospital or when they go to the local clinic they wouldn't explicitly know like if if such controlling uh, i mean what kind of informations are being collected and and integrated within the health care system public health care system so that's like the routinization of this emergency practice of this collection of massive amounts of personal data and how that's used for governance, how that's used for uh, public health is a worrying area for me. And I, because I'm saying this because I know that the, 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 the contact tracing system, the digital contact tracing system, the Korea, the Korean government is, de has developed and is developing throughout um, the COVID-19 pandemic 
it's getting bigger and bigger and they are collecting more and more data that is um, like they're collecting CCTV footage. They're collecting uh, um, one international travel records and car, car transaction data and more and more and more data are being integrated to that system. And it's using for it's using to predict um, where is going to be the next hot zone. Um, where should epidemiological surveys should should put their efforts on to predict to accurately predict where where a large clusters of 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 cases is going to happen, and that kind of like bringing algorithmic system into disease prediction is a worrying area for me, and and that's where my my dissertation and my next research would also um, delve into. So you, Chen, let me give you the last word on this. You know, what do you expect? What kind of continuities flowing out of this COVID era might you expect to see in China in terms of surveillance technology? Sure. Uh, my research doesn't really concern with public health related technology, but you, through this paper, it really helps me to helps me to see two things I would like to point out. First is by thinking through those um, conjuring of China's big brother surveilling state-ish kind of discourses. Um, it kind of presumed that it's a top-down, unidirectional kind of power relations between the state and the citizens. And then through our, our research, I gradually kind of can grapple with this kind of, not just top-down, but bottom-up agency from the citizens. They kind of act as an agency which can kind of claim some power within citizens' hands, but also it has some complicity in it that kind of facilitates a kind of social mobilization for further normalizing certain kinds of technology and social technical systems. And then the second thing is, it really helps to me see, helps me to see how certain things got emerged while it's also got routinized and infrastructuralized. Because through this research and later on, the health QR code really is embedded in everyday life. For example, if you go to a bus, you need to show your green code. And if you go to a hospital, you also need to show your green code and things like that. It really showed me how through mundane practices, certain kinds of technologies got stabilized and infrastructuralized into everyday life. And those two things I will carry on in my future researches and re research and see how in different kinds of scenarios or even in pre-pandemic scenes, how certain kind of things have similarities or dissimilarities in their normalization. You've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank my guests, Youngren Kim and Yuchen Chen, authors, um, also with co-author Fan Lang of Amazing new article, Engineering Care in Pandemic Techno-Governance, the Politics of Care in China and South Korea's COVID-19 Tracking Apps. You can check out this article in the journal New Media and Society, Open Access. And um, thank you so much for this work and for taking time in the middle of a very busy uh, conference time and all of your other writing to um, explore it in this detail. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.